you're doing so, please take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 14. Continue our sermon series this morning through the book of Exodus. And as you're turning to Exodus chapter 14, a couple things I want to say. Number one, a reminder that on October 22nd, we will have a trunk or treat here at the church. Um, there's sign up out there for anyone who wants to be involved uh, in hosting a uh, car, there's a candy donation bucket out there, and if you have any questions, you can see uh, Cheryl Lee about that. Uh, um, another thing, did I, did I hear rightly out in the foyer that this is John and Liz's one-year anniversary? Is that today? Happy anniversary to John and Liz. Babuka. love them, thankful for them. The other thing I wanted to say, uh, you know, just as we're as we have everyone in church this morning, praise the Lord, um, the, the sound of little voices and ruffling that you're going to hear, uh, don't begrudge that. Uh, a church that doesn't have the sound of little voices in it is a church that's dying. And so we're thankful to God for those little distractions. Uh, and they will be here this morning, but Pastor Kevin tells me often that I have a very big mouth and uh, that I am incapable of whispering. So, uh, I, don't worry about me. No, no one's going to be louder than I am. So, Exodus chapter 14, we will read the whole chapter for our text this morning. Look with me, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. In front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pahahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. 
For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, Yahweh in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians so the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that through your word we would see your great power so that we would fear you and that we would believe in you and in your servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the name of of the Lord Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Some of you may have seen something I posted yesterday on social media. Every October, for me and for our home, is a time of remembrance and thankfulness. Um, I started pastoring in October of 2009, when Bethany and I first started uh, full-time ministry together. We were married for about five months at that point. And so this, is, this month is the 13th anniversary of when we started uh, full-time pastoral ministry. Next March 1st will be our uh, 10-year anniversary here pastoring at Christ Community Church. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm thankful. Like I said, it, it creates uh, remembering and, th- and thankfulness for me. I'm thankful for the two churches that I pastored near Owensboro, Kentucky, Um, I'm thankful, of course, most of all for Christ Community Church, uh, having grown up here um, and then pastoring here. My family first joined Christ Community Church in January of 1999. I was in fifth grade and uh, grew up here, and to pastor here for this last decade only makes me more excited for the decades to come. Thankful for uh, Pastor Kevin and his leadership uh, to bring us back here. Uh, but every October, um, when we talk about it, we remember uh, it creates, it generates thankfulness. Uh, that's not to say that every day has been fun uh, or perfect, that every meeting has been enjoyable, um, but thankfulness, thankfulness for you people, uh, for Pastor Kevin and his wife Valerie, for all of the elders and their wives, and just for the Lord and His providence uh, to allow us to serve Him in ministry. But you have times like that too, don't you? I mean, we all do. Um, Whether it's uh, an annual birthday or a wedding anniversary, uh, the annual reminder of the death of a loved one, uh, marking um, the birth of a child, a graduation ceremony, uh, an anniversary at, at work, whatever it is, we all have these occasions that we celebrate in regular ways. We celebrate federal holidays like Independence Day, marking uh, the day that uh, the United States of America became a nation formally. We have annual religious holidays like Easter and Christmas that remind us of the the high holy days, the most important days of our faith. Why do we mark these occasions? Why do we celebrate these things regularly? It's because they aid us, they help us in remembering the important. This is true in Scripture as well. Until the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the most important event in redemptive history is the Exodus. Until Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, the most important thing that happens in the Old Testament, the thing that most shapes everything else, is what we've been talking about these last few weeks the Exodus. There is no event that Scripture hearkens back to more than the Exodus. No matter where you look in your Bible, there will be references to the Exodus. Over and over again, the Bible points us back to the Exodus because 
the Exodus is the archetype of salvation in the Bible. Scripture is constantly calling us to remember the Exodus. And God's Word does that. God's Word constantly calls us back to the Exodus so that God's people would remember and would be thankful. But that's not all. We also look back to the Exodus in anticipation of what is to come. The Exodus was not an end in and of itself. No, the Exodus was a providential picture pointing us to something greater. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Exodus chapter 14. I want you to notice, first of all, that Exodus 14 can be divided into two sections, verses 1 through 9 and then verses 10 through 31. Uh, there, there are grammatical uh, literary reasons why we would section uh, the pericope into these two um, sections. Notice that verse one through, verses 1 through 9 are sandwiched by those two locations in Hebrew, those ones that look kind of difficult to say, and then when I said them so effortlessly, you were impressed by me. Do you remember that? That's what I'm talking about. Pihahiroth and Baal Zephon in verse 2, and they're also repeated again in verse 9. What, why is that doing that? Well, Moses is doing that to show you, okay, here's kind of a section, and then we move on to the next section. We know chapter 14 is the end of a section because chapter 15 begins the Song of Moses. So you can see these kind of literary clues as to how um, the Holy Spirit intended us to divide the text up. Verses 1 through 9, uh, Yahweh is telling Moses how he will get glory over Pharaoh in Egypt. And then, ooh, hello. And then in verses... 10 through 31, we see the account of how Yahweh gets glory over Pharaoh in Egypt. So 1 through 9, he's explaining to Moses what's going to happen. Verses 10 through 31, we read the account of what actually happens, that Yahweh is glorified in saving Israel through judging Egypt at the Red Sea. God is glorified through saving Israel by judging Egypt at the Red Sea. You may have noticed that as we read through chapter 14, um, Exodus 14 never actually uses the term the Red Sea. Just keep saying the sea. Uh, but Exodus 13 says the Red Sea, and Exodus 15 also says the Red Sea. And this is what uh, this has commonly become known as. What's interesting is that I mean, this is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, right? I mean, one of the most famous pericopes in all of the Bible, and the way we talk about it, calling it the, the parting of the Red Sea, is actually a mistranslation of what the Hebrew actually says. In Ex you'll notice in Exodus chapter 13, verse 18, it says, But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. That word red in English is the Hebrew word suf, which actually means reeds. So, so the Hebrew, if you look at the Hebrew Old Testament, Exodus 13, 18, it literally says the sea of reeds. It doesn't say the Red Sea. The sea of reeds. It was mistranslated when the Greek Septuagint was translated as red, and that 
was passed down through generations. So we say the Red Sea now, it's what Christians have said for hundreds of years. The Bible, it, it never actually says the Red Sea in the Bible. It's called the Sea of Reeds. Uh, now that being said, we're just gonna keep saying the Red Sea because that's what everyone says anyway. But now, if anybody says it to you, you can be like, well, actually, and you can let them know. Suf, Suf means reeds, not red. Anyway, that was a side note. What we see at the Red Sea is that Yahweh is sovereign over this whole situation, right? From beginning to end. We looked at that some weeks ago that even hundreds of years before all this happened, Yahweh told Abraham, your, your children's children are gonna go into uh, Egypt. You're gonna go into a foreign nation for 400 years, right? So the Lord is in control of this whole thing, planning it out, um, sovereignly administering over it. Uh, what the Lord prophesies in verses one through nine, his victory, he then executes in verses 10 through 31. In verse four, Yahweh declares, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So Yahweh is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart one last time here. He says, I will get the glory over Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter five, verse two, Pharaoh said, I'm not gonna obey the Lord. I don't know who the Lord is. Here in Exodus 14, four, Yahweh says, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. So everything that the Lord has promised is coming to fruition here. And so Yahweh does harden Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh does pursue after the people of Israel. And this scares the Hebrews. You notice that as you're moving through redemptive history, maybe you're doing a Bible reading plan or uh, you know, you're teaching kids Sunday school or something and you're moving through the narrative and it becomes pretty clear that the people of Israel uh, very often do what they ought not to do, right? I mean, they just, you know, it's, it's, you read through the book of Judges, you read through the cycle of the kings, Israel in exile, it's always a mess. And here is another example of that where the Lord is saving them in these powerful ways and the Egyptians are coming and they're still afraid of the Egyptians. They're scared. I love the, the King James says that they were sore afraid, you know. Um, the people said to Moses, it is, be, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? And they think it's over. But Moses responds, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Once again, we noted that the Exodus is the great archetype of salvation in scripture. And so this statement here even is a great summary of soteriology. Soteriology means uh, the doctrine of salvation, how we are saved. This statement is a great summary of the doctrine of salvation. See the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. From beginning to end, the work of salvation is thoroughly monergistic, meaning it is the work of God alone. It is God alone who saves. From election all the way through glorification, there is nothing 
that we can do to save ourselves. God alone has the power to change fallen human hearts. Now, modern Westerners, we can be prone to idolize our own perception of free will, but we would be wise to hear the Spirit-inspired word here. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And God does fight for His people. He puts a pillar of fire and uh, the cloud between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. And then God commands Moses to stretch out his hands over the sea. And God sent an east wind and he parted the sea so that God's people walked on the dry land with walls of water on the right hand and the left. Okay, picture like when you go to the Detroit Zoo and you walk through the little polar bear tunnel and there's water all around you, right? Just times that by about a million and you get this picture of a sea, the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea as it's commonly referred to, parting and 600,000 people walking through it on dry ground with walls of water on either side. This is one of the most epic moments in redemptive history, is it not? There's a reason why this narrative is so culturally popular, even among those who don't believe. There's a reason why if you ask someone on the street about Israel and the parting of the Red Sea and Moses, people who aren't even Christians are going to know what you're talking about. There's a reason why multiple movies have been made about the Exodus, the Charlton Heston, uh, the Christian Bale movie. You know, the Rugrats did an Exodus deal back in the day for my OG 90s kids out there. But, and, and whenever you have an account of the Exodus in a movie or a show or something, this is always the climactic scene. They get to the Red Sea and it looks like they've hit a dead end and then the waters part. Even that phrase, when people talk about, you know, it, it's something miraculously worked out, what do they say sometimes? They say, well, the waters parted and, you know, I mean, this is ingrained culturally. This is a massive redemptive historical moment. To use the word literally, this is awesome. Can you imagine seeing this? being there. There's a reason why Scripture is constantly calling us back to this moment. This is a powerful work of God to save His people and to judge His enemies. So the Egyptians follow the people of Israel into the sea, and when all of the Hebrews reach the eastern shore, Yahweh tells Moses once again to stretch out His hands over the sea, and the walls of water collapse on the Egyptians, killing every single one of them. The Egyptian scripture says, washed up dead on the seashore. And God was glorified by saving his people through judging the Egyptians. I think this pericope is so intriguing. I think it's so powerful because as awesome as a scene as this is and it is awesome it inspires awe it's pointing us to something even greater 
It's pointing us to a greater Moses. It's pointing us to the true Israel. The Exodus account in the Red Sea is the great archetype of salvation because it is a signpost that is leading us to how God is ultimately glorified in salvation through judgment. In our call to worship, Pastor Andrew read from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, and Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there, St. Matthew tells us that through Jesus' life and ministry, that the Lord Jesus is recapitulating the experience of Israel. That Jesus is almost reliving these events of Israel. Think about this. Just as Pharaoh ordered the systematic abortion of all of the Hebrew boys in Egypt, in Exodus chapter 1, during the first century, Herod ordered the systematic abortion of all male children under the age of two years old in Bethlehem. The angel of the Lord then commands Joseph to flee to Egypt until Herod dies. And Matthew reveals to us that when Jesus does this, it fulfills Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, when Hosea wrote uh, the book of Hosea, he was thinking of the Israelites. He was thinking of the Exodus and what we've been preaching through. But the Holy Spirit who inspired Hosea was pointing us forward to Jesus. That means that when God ordained the events of the Exodus, when the events of the Exodus took place in space and time, and when the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write down the events of the Exodus, that they were looking forward, they were doing so in anticipation of Jesus. After Jesus recapitulates Israel's exodus from Egypt, Matthew jumps right to the beginning of Christ's ministry. Matthew doesn't tell us about anything that happened in Jesus' life between returning from Egypt and beginning his ministry. And Jesus begins his ministry when he is baptized by John and then is tempted in the wilderness. So put the dots together. Just as Israel left Egypt went through the waters of the Red Sea and into the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus Christ left Egypt, went through the waters of baptism and into the wilderness for 40 days. Matthew writes this way to emphasize to us that Jesus Christ is the true Israel. He is the fulfillment of Israel's identity, vocation, and history. The point of Israel's place in redemptive history as God's old covenant people was to lead us to Jesus Christ, who is the true Israel. All of the promises are fulfilled in Jesus. There are no promises left to be fulfilled to ethnic Israel. Because 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. There is not a single Old Testament promise that is not fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus 
as the true and better Moses came to lead the final exodus. He came to secure salvation. Israel's slavery in Egypt was a shadow of the slavery of all humanity to sin. Ever since Adam fell, all humanity has been enslaved to sin and death. God is our holy creator. He made us in his image and God demands perfect righteousness from his creation. Humanity fell in sin through Adam. As a result of that, we are born with a sin nature. And as a result of that, we sin in thought, word, and deed. We sin by what we have done and we sin by what we have left undone. We confessed that truth just moments moments ago as Pastor Brett led us in our weekly confession and pardon. Because of our sin, we deserve death and we deserve eternal conscious punishment in a place called hell. We deserve God's judgment. But thanks be to God, as we confessed earlier in the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation, God the Father sent His Son, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and He lived a truly human life, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15, 1 Peter 2.22. Because Jesus was sinless, And because Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly, he earned righteousness on behalf of his people. 2 Peter 1.1. Jesus' righteousness made him the true unblemished lamb of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, he bore the wrath of God for the sins of God's people. Jesus endured the judgment that we deserve for sin. We just sang that, didn't we? Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. The pattern we see at the exodus of God's glory in saving people, his people, through judging the Egyptians is fulfilled then in the death of Jesus. Because God is ultimately glorified by saving his people through judging Jesus on the cross. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Jesus, the righteous one, took the judgment that we deserved for sin. This is what theologians call the great exchange. Jesus was without sin, but he bore the penalty for our sin. We are sinners, but because of Jesus' righteous life, substitutionary death, and resurrection, his righteousness is then imputed to us. It is an alien righteousness. It comes from outside of us so that by faith, when we look to Jesus, when God the Father sees us, he sees the pure righteousness of his Son. The great exchange. Jesus was then buried. And on the third day, Jesus resurrected from the dead and his resurrection was God's vindication of everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did, proving that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. The tomb is empty. And now everyone who will repent and believe this good news about Jesus will be saved. 
Now, what does that mean? When the Holy Spirit changes your hearts, your heart, you will repent. What does repent mean? It means to turn from your sin. You turn from your sin, you turn to Jesus. At the same time, so these are two sides of the same coin, you repent, at the same time you believe. You place your faith in Jesus alone. That means you take this knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, you assent to its validity, you believe it's actually true, and then you transfer your trust to Christ alone. Everyone who has faith in Jesus then is granted the forgiveness of sin and the hope of resurrection when Jesus returns to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. This is really important. God will judge your sin. Either that judgment fell on Jesus on the cross, or it will fall on you via eternal conscious punishment in hell. And the difference between those two things lies in what you do with Jesus. God's word commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. Have you done so? The gospel calls you even this morning, repent and believe in Jesus alone. And if you have believed the gospel, then we now follow in the pattern of Israel and Jesus Christ. Just as the children of Israel were led out of slavery in Egypt, and just as Jesus was led out of living as a refugee in Egypt, now everyone who trusts in Jesus has been led out of their slavery to sin. And just as Israel went through the Red Sea, and just as Jesus went through the waters of baptism, Christians go through the waters of baptism. And just as Israel went through the sea and into the wilderness where they ate the manna, Christians go through the waters of baptism, and then we come to the Lord's Supper every week, and we eat the bread, and we drink the wine. Israel went through the waters once, and they ate daily. We are baptized once, but we take communion weekly. This sacramental language is used of the Exodus account in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. Listen to this. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate of the same spiritual food, and all drank of the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that, flowed from, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is writing to warn the Corinthian Christians not to, um, not to uh, embrace unbelief, not to embrace evil, and he's using the Exodus account, tying it to the gospel as a warning for them. And as part of that, Paul says the Israelites were baptized into Moses, and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. The Old Covenant people were baptized into Moses at the Red Sea in the sense that 
Moses was God's spirit-inspired prophet. Moses spoke on behalf of God and Moses worked on behalf of God. And the people of Israel followed God's man, God's prophet, through the waters. Well, Jesus is the true and better Moses who is God's final prophet. Just look to the book of Hebrews. And Jesus is the one who leads his people through the final exodus. And so now we are not baptized into Moses under the old covenant uh, priesthood or the, uh, the prophet, but we are baptized in the pattern of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection because Jesus is the true and final prophet. But not only does Paul use baptism language here, we also hear an Eucharistic echo when he says that the Israelites ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. Israel ate the manna in the wilderness every day, just as we eat the bread every week. And Paul is saying that these redemptive historical experiences, that Israel's experiences at the Red Sea and wandering in the wilderness with the manna are foreshadowing the sacraments that Jesus left for us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So this is important for the New Testament. Wherever you see baptism tied to anything about eating and drinking, you should always think of the sacraments. So here he says, they were baptized into Moses. They ate the, the food. They drank the spiritual drink. If you're reading that and your mind doesn't think of baptism in the Lord's Supper, you are reading the Bible wrong. This is what Paul is doing here. This is what the New Testament is doing. Notice also that Paul writes, these things took place as examples for us. Isn't that interesting? He's taking an Exodus account, tying it to the gospel of Jesus, and then saying it's written for us. That means when God providentially ordained the events of the Exodus and the wilderness wandering, and when the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write the book of Exodus down in the Pentateuch, not only was the Holy Spirit thinking of Jesus, but he was also thinking of Christ Community Church in 2022. That's what verse 6 means. It means that because we follow Jesus, this narrative was written for our good. These are some important hermeneutical principles that we can draw from this text, two of them. First, every text in the Bible is about Jesus. Every single pericope in the Bible is about Jesus. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, there is nothing in the Bible that isn't about Christ. And if you ever hear someone get up and give you a sermon with no Jesus in it from the Old Testament, don't go back. No good. The whole Bible is about Jesus. But there's another hermeneutical point here that's important too, is that every passage in Scripture is applicable to all of God's people in all times. Every passage in the Bible is applicable to all of God's people who have lived for all time. That means there are no passages in the Bible that are only applicable to ethnic Jews in the past. There are no passages in the Bible that exclusively apply to Jews or Christians in the future. 
Every single passage in the Bible is about Jesus, and every single passage in the Bible applies to all of God's people in every generation. One final point of application here. While the Red Sea and the Exodus account in general are primarily about salvation. That's what we should think of. When, when you're reading your Bible, when we're preaching through the book of Exodus, when you're teaching kids Sunday school, whatever you're doing, when you're, when you're seeing the Exodus, you should always think this is about salvation. This is ultimately about how Jesus saves his people from the slavery of sin. Okay, so that's true. That's what it's primarily about. But we can also make some application, I think, to how God works in our lives. Here's the problem. Because of the proliferation of revivalism and Pentecostalism and attractional ministry and seeker-sensitive church ministry, many American Christians correlate communion with God or Christian growth they, they correlate those things with emotions and experience. So I'm not really communing with God unless I get the feels. I'm not really growing unless I learn something new from the sermon. Emotions and experience are what American Christians are correlating to communion with God and growth in Christianity. Maybe some of you do that as well. Maybe if you were honest with yourself, you would say, I'm prone to think that way and feel that way. When you're on a spiritual high, you feel emotionally close to God. Maybe while listening to certain religious songs or when a sermon changes your perspective on something, you associate that with communing with God or with growing in Christ. On the flip side, then, when you are not on a spiritual high or the sermon reveals no new information to you or you don't feel like going to church or you don't feel like reading your Bible or you don't feel like singing or you're struggling in sin or suffering or to be blunt, when Christianity just seems boring to you. In those moments, you don't feel like you're communing with God and you don't feel like you're growing in Christ. While we have in our lives these certain, quote, Red Sea moments from time to time, these are unique experiences in God's providence that shape our lives. And we've all had them. Every, anyone who's a Christian has had the ultimate Red Sea experience. When you were delivered from your sin and death and brought into the promised land of new creation, a resurrection. That, that was the Red Sea moment all believers have had. But we've also had moments in our lives that you look back on, you're like, man, that was unique, right? And God did something providentially there that it doesn't always happen. And it's kind of like a, a signpost in your life. It's kind of like an Ebenezer, to use the old uh, terminology. While God does do that sometimes, we do have Red Sea moments in our lives. That is not how God ordinarily works. Israel experienced the Red Sea once. They ate the manna every day. Israel experienced the Red Sea once. They ate the manna every day. 
God is more often in the daily manna moments of our lives than he is in the parting of the Red Sea moments of our lives. Revivalism and Pentecostalism, attractional church ministry and seeker-sensitive church ministry have trained people to associate emotional highs and unique experiences with communion with God and Christian growth. But Scripture tells another story. The Bible reveals to us that God communes with us and that God grows us through the ordinary means of grace. Pastor Kevin mentioned this last week. The preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, giving to the church, like giving your tithes and offerings, singing, fellowship with the church. When you feel like it and when you don't, when you learn something new and when you don't, it doesn't matter. Your heart will deceive you if you're basing your communion with God and your Christian growth on how you feel. The heart is desperately wicked. But what is objectively true is that God is always there and God is always working through his ordained means of grace. That means that the most important thing that any one of us can do to have communion with God and to grow in our faith is to regularly attend the worship gathering of the local church. Reading your Bible on your own is good. Listening to religious music is fine. Parachurch organizations and Bible studies can be helpful as long as they don't replace the church. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with going out into God's beautiful creation and spending time in prayer. All of these things are fine in and of themselves, but listen, none of them are the church. And so none of them have the, the ordained means of grace that God has given for his people to commune with him and to grow in their faith. God speaks through the preaching of the word when the church is gathered. God communes with and grows his people through the means of grace. Together. Watching online is not the same as gathering with God's people. If you want to commune with God, if you want to grow in your Christian life, center your life on the local church. In turn, if you don't want to commune with God and you don't want to grow, then don't come to church to hear the preaching of the word. Don't take communion. Don't pray. Don't give financially. Don't sing. Don't have fellowship with the church. If you really want to not have communion with God and you really want to not grow, don't do those things. But if you want fellowship with the Lord and you want to grow in your faith, do not neglect the means that God ordained to have fellowship with you and to grow you in your faith. Israel experienced the Red Sea once. They ate the manna every day. 
Scripture is, is constantly calling us to remember the Exodus. And that's true because the Exodus is the great archetype of salvation in the Bible. And because the Exodus is the great archetype of salvation in the Bible, it causes us to look forward to the true and final Exodus led by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's identity, vocation, and history. Jesus leads us out of the slave market of sin and death into the promised land of regeneration and resurrection. And just as God's old covenant people remembered the Exodus every year at the Passover, so now God's new covenant people remember the death of Jesus every week at the Holy Eucharist. Israel went through the waters of the sea and they ate the manna in the wilderness. Christians are saved by faith in Christ alone. We go through the waters of baptism and then we eat the bread and we drink the wine so that we can remember and we can be thankful. Church, every week we gather around this table together to remember and proclaim that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Amen. Let's pray.